Turn, please, to John chapter 1. It has been my habit for several years to preach with only the text of Scripture in front of me with no notes. Um, The passage today does not allow for such a thing. There's too many things going on, and so if you see me looking down at notes in a little uh, bit of an unusual manner, it's because we're dealing with perhaps one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture, uh, and I do not trust my memory that much. So it has taxed me enormously uh, the past couple weeks in preparing this, and so I simply have to have my notes with me. So it may look a little bit different this morning. Don't worry. The reality is that we're coming today to the end of the prologue, which means that there has to be a clarity of what John has been attempting throughout all of this to portray for us. Now, he's not only attempting, he is succeeding significantly. The reality is that it depicts for us the nature of the person of the word in such a manner as to leave us without excuse. The entirety of the Gospel of John is written with an evangelistic purpose in mind. It is written and stated to be such that those who are reading this book may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, they too may have life in his name. That is stated in chapter 20. It is the very purpose that he is writing this. And therefore, it comes into our minds to say, if all of this is centered on the person of Christ, it should start off not with a story of his uh, time in Bethlehem, not a story of his early ministry or any such thing. It should start off with saying, who is Jesus the Christ? Because if all of salvation and all of the gospel is dependent on him, then who is he? And why is he capable of such things? Why is it that he is capable of carrying it out? Why does his body matter? Why does his blood matter? And this is something that those who imagine that Jesus of Nazareth was simply a good teacher, a good example, or a fine rabbi completely fail to understand. If that is all he was, then he's worthless to our salvation. For salvation is not about a good example to follow. And salvation is not about finding purpose in life. It's not even about working miracles. Salvation is about him who came into this world. The prologue started off quite well-known in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. We went through great depths to describe that. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That there's nothing in all of the creation that was made except that it was made through Him. He is not a part of this creation, though He stepped into it. He was with God, but he also had the quality of being God. Interpersonal relationship, singular being. The nature of the Trinity being put on full display straight up. Very little interpretation needed. Very much confusion sets in, though. 
Because while we think we may have had a decent grasp on the reality that the Word was God and with God and then created all things and has life in Himself and light in Himself, and that when such a being would enter into that which is darkness and death, and darkness tries to overcome it and fails, and death tries to overcome him and fails, the reality is people will seek to explain it away in any way possible. And the prologue of John does not let us do such things. He keeps bringing us back to it. I'll remind you of verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That which eternally was existing was doing something different. Was coming into the world. The world that was made by him, yet the world did not know him. That is not a problem on his side. That is a problem on our side. In fact, he says, he even came to his own people. And his people did not know him and did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, remember this from last week, to those who believed in his name, he gave the authority, the power to become children of God. There is no greater statement made in the history of man than that God came into this world and gave certain people the power and the authority to become his children. It is this type of reality that makes angels wonder about our relationship with Christ. It is this reality that causes all the heavenly hosts to rejoice when one of us comes to salvation and to that relationship with God. And yet we see it commonplace. We look for signs and wonders and we deny that the real miracles that are at work in the world is salvation on a scale that you and I cannot even see. It is a miracle that any of you are Christians. It is a miracle that God took us from dead in trespasses and sins and caused us to be alive again and hope in his name. That is a miracle that far outweighs what happened to Lazarus in the tomb. It is much easier to make a corpse walk around than it is to make a dead sinner come to salvation. Scripturally, the greater miracle is salvation. And so when he comes in and says that the reality that has happened is that salvation has come into the world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and what happened is the darkness hated him. The world, even his own people, hated him. They desired to put him to death, but what do we know about he who in whom all life exists? Death cannot hold him. Darkness cannot overcome him. It may attempt to snuff out the light, and yet it will fail every time. And when it comes to us, my friends, darkness and death, if we have the authority and the power to become children of God, guess what? Death cannot overcome you either. Do not fret about the evil who do evil in their way. Darkness will not overtake you either. Though it may kill the body, we serve him who destroys body and soul. Take heart, my friends. The one that we serve knows no limit to his power. 
knows no limit and no thing in all of creation that can undo what he is doing. And since we serve a God like that, we should see our sufferings in light of that. We should see the difficulties of our life in light of him who went through the grave and brings us through it as well. We were brought into this relationship with God, not in the way of regular regeneration, but in the spiritual regeneration that we see in verse 13. Those who were given the authority and power to become the children of God, verse 13, were born not of blood, not our generations, not our ancestors, nor of the will of the flesh, sexual desires and things like this, nor of the will of a husband, but of God. God brought us to life. That is the start of the gospel in somebody's life that he is saving. Do not look at the gospel and say, well, God made the case and uh, it met my standard of evidence, so I came to God. No, you didn't. If you are desiring to serve God, God has been at work in your heart before you ever realized it. Let me explain something about this. Look back to the story of Lazarus. Was Lazarus, when he was dead in the grave, was he aware that Jesus was coming to town? Was he preparing himself to hear for the words, just waiting? Man, I know I'm a corpse and dead and all that, but I can't wait to walk out of this. I really hope he takes exception to all the death around us and calls me to walk out of the grave. Hope, 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 can't wait. No, dead. We have the same language described of us dead in trespasses and sins. Children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind, except that God does something. Come out of that grave, walk. He does the same thing to us. Leave the sins and walk in the newness of life. You say, what does that have to do with the Gospel of John? That's everything. Everything, every miracle, every teaching, every narrative, the prologue, every single story is laser focused on the person that's reading the Gospel of John and saying, this has everything to do with you. Do not think that you can walk about this life and ignore Christ. You can't. Every single thing that you see, even the eyes that you are looking with, were made through him. They're sustained by his word. They're sustained by his power. You cannot escape him. And so if you continue in sin, in an unrepentant heart, you should fear. And if you are his saved ones, if you are in the body of Christ, if you are the bride of Christ, how many pictures are we given? If you are in the family of God, you should fear nothing that man can do to us. Instead, you should take heart. Because God is not so far from this creation as you may imagine. This word that we have been talking about did something in history that affects every single one of us. And I want you to see it. Let's stand in honor of God and his word as we read these very, very, very complicated five verses. And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray for several miracles that you would cause us to understand your word and an even greater miracle, Father, that we would love your word. That we would apply it and seek to live it out amongst the fellowship of saints. Father, may it have the reaction in our life that we confess repent, and walk with you in joy. May we always turn our face to Christ. May we walk in the newness of life and in the joy of our salvation in a way that we did not even yesterday. May this word penetrate to the very core of our being. We pray in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. We take on a monumental task to finish the prologue of the Gospel of John. Uh, It is perhaps one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture uh, to study and to understand and to apply and to see, especially if you have to preach the rest of the Gospel of John after it. It's very easy to preach passages removed from their context. Uh, It's easy because it's very easy to be wrong. It's very hard to ensure that what you're about to say with regards to the prologue, which gives an illustration for the rest of the next 20 chapters, is actually right. And it takes a great deal of work, and I want you to work a bit with me this morning because this is one of those passages that requires some sweat, maybe a little tears and blood. We'll see how the morning goes. It shows us from the very opening that this word who we have been discussing who was and is God, who was with God, who created all things, became flesh. It is where we get the word incarnation. It just means in flesh. The idea that the word, the Son of God himself, became flesh breaks every single philosophical rule we have. And I love it. Because it is God coming to the mind of man and saying, you think you had this figured out. It's John saying, good, for the first 13 verses, you think you had this figured out. First of all, yes, some very difficult concepts of the Trinity and the interpersonal relationship between the persons of the Trinity, singular being of God and yet three persons and all sorts of things that come up. If you think you've got a good hold on that, verse 14 just swipes your feet out from underneath you and says, let's break all the categories. This eternal, always existing word through whom everything was made came into what was made. Think about it this way. You're writing a book. Characters all over the place. And all of a sudden, you jump into the book. That's that's not possible. How does the book sustain while you're in there? 
How can you be in there if you're the one writing things? How do these things connect? What? We don't know. We don't know. And anyone who tells you they do know are people who have studied this a little bit. The reality is this breaks everything that we have because it's unlike anything we've ever seen. Everything we've ever seen, we've, we've seen a person that was flesh from the beginning of their onset. Conception, they have a body-soul unity, carry on through their life, and at death we see that separate out again. But for Christ, for the Son, for the Word, He was existing, to use the proper translation, as God before the world was. He was existing with God before the world was. He was existing before anything ever was created. And as he was existing in the eternal past present, he did something in time. Not just some actions or some miracles. We can see that. We understand that when an author is writing a book, they write and it carries out this. No, he became flesh, part of the physical creation, part of the physical realm, bound to time and to age. Oh man, you got to grasp this. The eternal Son of God had never aged. Nothing had ever occurred to him. He knew all things, carried out all things, sustained all things, made all things. He had never learned anything. He knew everything. He had never traveled anywhere. He was everywhere. And then all of a sudden, from our perspective, something grand changes. And the Word of God becomes flesh conceived in the Virgin Mary, not by the will of man, not by the desire of a husband or any such thing, carried out by God the same way your salvation is and my salvation is. Carried out by God. The Word became flesh, and I don't know if any of your translations point this out, but the word dwelt is not a sufficient term for what the word did. The word became flesh, and if you really want an Old Testament equivalent to this, tabernacled among us. He templed among us. He guarded the glory of God with his own physical body. So that when you saw him walking on the street, you would not see him with a halo or glowing or any such thing. What you would see is a man that looks like any other man. Unless you happen to be one of the three disciples who stood on the Mount of Transfiguration where the glory of Christ was peeled back for just a moment. John was there decades before writing this. And when he says that we beheld his glory, we're going to get there. When he says that we saw that, he's not even talking about the man of transfiguration. He's talking about what Christ did. What he did in the body, what he did in his ministry, what he carried about. How do we know this? Because we see the evidence of it all over what he says and what he does. The Word became flesh, and He tabernacled among us. One of the most important pictures in history is the nature of temples. 
I've actually given an entire sermon here on this subject. The reality is that from the very beginning of our existence with God, there's always been a temple, a place where we go to worship God. There's always been that. It was the Garden of Eden at the beginning. During the flood, it was the ark. After that, there was a temple in the ancient city of Salem, which later on became Jerusalem. After that, there was a priest in Midian while the people of Israel were in captivity. After that, there was a burning bush. We'll talk about that next week. After that was a tabernacle, fully decided, fully designed, fully laid out by the Spirit of God for the people to build. After that was the temple of Solomon. After that was the temple of Zerubbabel. After that was Herod's temple. After that was Christ. Tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it again in three days, speaking of his body. After that is the church. This is why we gather together to worship God together. Why? This is the temple of God. Assembled not of bricks, but of living stones. Assembled not to support a priestly class, but assembled to worship and sacrifice to the holy God. Here we're dealing with a time frame that predates the New Testament church. And so when he describes the body of Christ as a tabernacle, it's truly the case of it. A place where God dwells. This is why the New Testament church has the Holy Spirit indwelling her. A temple is the place where God dwells. And so what he says here is that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. This is what Moses wanted to see. Show me your glory. And God says, you can't see that. If you see that, you're going to die. I'll cause one of my attributes to pass in front of you while I cover your face and you can see the afterglow. How's that? And with that, Moses' face shone for weeks just to see the afterglow of the backside of one of the attributes of God. All his goodness. No man can see the Father and live. Not like that. The desire of Moses to see the glory of God, John says, we saw it. You say, wow, what an incredible experience that must have been. What did it look like? It looked like any other person. And like, John, what are you talking about? How is it if you can say that you've seen the glory of God and yet it was not necessarily perceivable to the eyes? He says, but it was. We saw what he did. We heard what he said. We saw what he was capable of. We saw him raised from the dead. We saw every single aspect of this. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only, and this is the first time we have this, and you'll see it all over the Gospel of John. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, full of of truth. To perceive the glory of God is to perceive his grace and his truth. 
From the Old Testament, which gives all the background to this, you should be hearing of God's covenantal devotedness to his people, which is grounded in his grace because none of us deserve this, and it is grounded in his truth and his promise and his faithfulness. When he tells us that he's going to save us, my friends, believe him. When he tells us that no matter what happens, the end shall surely come in the way that he has designed it to come. Trust him. When he says that you're going to many thorny ways and fulfilling the sufferings of Christ, but do not worry, you serve a faithful creator. Commit yourselves to him. When he says to you, this is the way of it, believe him. This is how we come to scripture. This is how we approach it. And don't for a second take our theories and supplant Christ with our theories. There were several who said, maybe it's not Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe it's John the Baptist. And so John warns us for a second, and he quotes it in the very next verse, verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out. Now, he has already reminded us in verse 6 that there was another man named John. This is John the Baptist that says very clearly, I'm not the light, I came to bear witness about the light. But in verse 15, he quotes him again, he says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, and here's the word of John the Baptist, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And yes, the emphasis is on the silence. John the Baptist was older than Jesus of Nazareth. What is he talking about? John the Baptist was a good several months older than Jesus of Nazareth. We don't know exactly how much. What is he talking about? Jesus of Nazareth was not before him. John the Baptist knew something that nobody else knew. The one coming into the world was God himself. No theory of the Messiah had that one on their bingo cards. None. None of them. They knew he would do miracles. They knew he would overtake things. They knew that the government would rest upon his shoulders. They knew all of these things, but they didn't know two very small basic things. One, he would be God, and two, he would save the whole world. Completely surprised, all of them, except one, John the Baptist, who knew before he met Christ during his earthly ministry that he reigned before him because he existed before him. Say, how does that happen? Well, John the Baptist had a really unique life and a really unique role as the forerunner of the Messiah, starting all the way back in the womb of his mother. The first one to recognize Jesus of Nazareth. You remember this? Elizabeth came to visit Mary, and a conscienceless John the Baptist in utero. I don't know if you guys remember, you know, before you were born. I don't. But a conscienceless in utero, one who's never heard a single word of God, who hadn't yet found salvation, 
who hadn't done anything or seen a single face or known anything got excited when Jesus showed up in the room and leaped around, which I imagine sounds absolutely horrific to uh, a mother. John the Baptist had a very unique relationship with Jesus of Nazareth, not just because they were distant cousins. He had a very unique relationship with him because he was able to see that he, meaning John the Baptist, was to decrease while he, meaning Jesus of Nazareth, was to increase. Why? Because he ranks before me. You say, but you're older than him. And John the Baptist goes, it's not that simple. He was, and he uses the same singular, rare, past existing terminology that John, who's writing this, I know there's too many Johns here. The Gospel of John is using this past eternal terminology. John the Baptist uses it here too, was existing. He ranks before me because he was existing before me. Even though I'm older than him in the flesh, He has always been. Therefore, I must decrease and he must increase. Can I remind you, Christian, that is also the virtue of the Christian life. We must decrease and Christ must increase. No matter the cost, no matter the path. For John, it saw him to have his head cut off. That's not a simple path, my friends. And when he was in prison, we saw just how much doubt can come on those who suffer. He sent word to Jesus of Nazareth saying, you got to tell me straight out, are you truly him or not? So what did Jesus say to the disciples of John the Baptist? Go tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind see, the lame walk, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. John the Baptist is looking for the glory of the Lord. And so what does Jesus say? Go tell him what you have seen. Go tell him what you have heard. That is the glory of the Lord. And this is where the gospel of John finishes out this prologue by telling the reader, you're about to interact with a person that's going to change everything. He says, verse 16, for from his fullness, we have not only perceived the grace of God, we have actually received the grace of God. We have received not just the grace of God, but grace upon grace. You say, that's a strange terminology to use. Yes, it is. Very unusual. And he depicts what he means in the very next verse. So we'll go to that and we'll come right back. What does he say? We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's your grace upon grace. What does he mean here? He says, what we have received, what we have beheld, what we have actually done in this, we have received from Christ the law 
and the gospel. Both have come to us, meaning the law itself was a grace. How many of you have ever looked at the book of Leviticus and said, thanks be to the grace of God? We should. You know why? There is on display the holiness of God. There is on display the grace of God. Why? Not because you and I benefit from the law in that way of salvation, but because you and I get to behold who God is in all his holiness and what ramifications that have to those who seek to follow him. The book of Leviticus causes us to respond to the law of God in a very specific way. Cry out for mercy, for God is holy, and we have the requirement of holiness, and we cannot attain it. It is a grace that we have that information. It is a grace that God sent his law to dying people. And so we back up to verse 16 and say, it is not just a fullness of the existence of mankind that we have this. No, it's from Christ's fullness. It's from the Son of the Father's fullness that we have all received both of these. Which means, again, we go back and say, if the law came through Moses, and the Gospel of John is telling us that that's actually a grace that came from the Son of God, you have to start putting into your mind something. That Jesus of Nazareth is not where the Son of God's story started, but that he gave us the law through Moses centuries beforehand. And then when he came and says, I'm not here to abolish the law, why? Because he wrote it. I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to bring it to its completed purpose. I'm here to do what the law of God requires of mankind. And I'm going to do it in accordance with the law, which means if he's going to save anyone, he's going to have to die. All of these things came from the Son's fullness. All of these things, the law came to us through Moses, but it came ultimately from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, look at that in verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Isn't that unique? That the law merely required a human infallible mediator. An interesting foreshadow. But that the gospel, when it came, required a divine and perfect mediator. We couldn't just look to a human to do this. Not someone who is merely human, but somebody who had to be human as well. The gospel required a divine and perfect mediator. And it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. We see the culmination of the introduction of who Jesus of Nazareth is. If you were merely another human, then the gospel has no power then. If you were merely another human, then his grace is actually unhelpful to us. And if you were merely another human, he is not worthy of our worship. Understand how much of the Christian life presupposes the divinity of Christ. If you were merely another human, then you, my friends, are still in your sins. And if you were merely another human, you have no hope at all. Which means, for those of us who call on the Lord for salvation, 
The Gospel of John is not merely an evangelistic text. It is a hopeful text. And it sets us free to walk in the light of him who lives forever. Why? Because our eternal life has already begun. And we still walk with him. We still walk with him. But we had an issue. The law of God came, and it foreshadowed a lot of things, but it hid the face of God behind a veil. Literally, inside a tabernacle, behind a veil. The law of God also demanded that no man can see the Father and live. No man can see the face of God and live. It doesn't work like that. The law hid God behind a veil. And this is where we find ourselves in verse 18. One of the most confusing and difficult passages has one of the most beautiful meanings to it. And I want you to hunker down for a second with me in this verse. No one has ever seen God. Now, let's pause there for a second. I want you to realize how big of a statement that is. I want you to realize that here when John is talking about the Father, he's making a claim here that not a single person has ever seen the Father. That means when we see stories of Moses meeting face to face with God in the Old Testament, we're not talking about the Father. That means when we see the angel of the Lord showing up and people looking, this one who receives all worship, Face to face, we're not talking about the Father. When we're talking about the word of the Lord showing up to Jeremiah, we're not talking about the Father showing up. Who are we talking about? If no one has ever seen the Father, but people have seen God in a very unique sorts of ways, what are we to garner from this? And as he's just explained out to us, it is not that Christ is just older than Bethlehem. It is not that he just showed up in history at certain points. It is not that he just came and saw Jeremiah. It is not that Ezekiel actually saw his glory. It is not just that Isaiah, as he will state in chapter 10 of the book of John, that Isaiah, when he came to the throne room of heaven in Isaiah 6, that he was actually beholding the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. It is not even just to the time of Isaiah. It is not even to the time of David. It is not even just back to the time of Moses in the tent of meeting or Abraham as he is sitting down and giving dinner to God and to two angels before they go to Sodom and Gomorrah. It is not just when he comes and speaks to Noah. It is when he walks through the Garden of Eden and there is a sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Here, there, my friends is the Son. His plan, his purpose, did not start in Bethlehem. Though that is where we first truly perceived who he is. And here John says, there's no one that has ever seen God, meaning the Father. And then he switches it around. Now, I know there's a bunch of different translations in this room, so this verse reads differently. I almost promise you in your 
version because this is one of the most notoriously hard to translate verses in all of scripture. And then on top of that, there's a textual variant, which makes everyone confused and unhappy. So let me give you the best translation I can lay out of this. And please understand that after five years of Greek, I struggle with this sentence mightily. And so does everyone. My best translation of this verse is no one has ever seen God The only God who is in the closest fellowship with the Father has made him known. Let me explain why. One, because the Greek certainly is there. Two, because variant translational issues I'm not going to get into. What I will note is here, it is a direct parallel to the opening of the prologue. A near-perfect parallel. The one who was God and is with God, here we have the same. No one has ever seen the Father. And yet, the only God who is at the Father's side, there again we have singular God and then interpersonal relationships stated again, the same way we have in verse 1, has made him known. And that's the whole point of the prologue of John. You want to see the Father? You want to know who God is and what his salvation is? Look to Christ. You want to know what salvation is like? Look to the one whose name literally means salvation, Jesus of Nazareth. You want to know what God is like because you can't see him? Look to Christ. Philip, one of the disciples here in the Gospel of John, will say towards the end of the ministry of Christ, you know, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. What does Jesus answer back? Philip, you've been with me all this time, and you don't know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's not saying I and the Father are the same person. What he's saying is, you want to behold the glory of the Father? It's sitting here in front of you. In my actions, in my words, this is the glory of God manifest to you. We'll see it at his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. Most of us know that story. In fact, turn there just a second. You can see where I'm actually at in my studies. We'll see it at the wedding of Cana at the end part of this. It's, oh, I'm sorry. It's John chapter 2. I'm assuming you know this story, so I'm not going to walk you through the whole story. Obviously, the water turned to wine, and all of this stuff happened. Verse 10, he said to them, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Look at this. Why did he do this miracle? Why did he do this sign? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the result is his disciples believed in him. The whole point of the Gospel of John is to show us the glory of Jesus so that you and I believe in him. The whole point, whether we are Thomas or Nicodemus, whatever skeptic direction we take, whether we want physical proof or theological proof, the reality is Jesus solves both of them whether we want an assurity of who he is and what he has done, whether we want clarity on these things, it will provide clarity to a level that you and I will never see anywhere else in all of history. 
because no one has ever seen God. But you want to see the glory of God? You want to behold his glory? Look in the face of Jesus Christ. The point here is that the only son, the one and only son who dwelt with the father and was always existing as God the son, has made known the very nature of the God that no eye has ever seen. Which means, my friends, as we sit down to study the Gospel of John for the next 18 or 24 months, depending on how slow I go, we get to join in a conversation that is older than time. We get to behold a person through whom all things were created, and then stepped into that creation. We get to see a light walking around in the dark, life walking in the midst of death. We get to see the Son of God in his relationship with the Father bringing other sons to glory. Don't miss the, the, the challenging reality of the fact that the Son of the Father is giving power to us to become children of God as well. That we are not left into the dark, but that we are pulled from him out of darkness into light. That we are pulled from him out of death into life. And all of these pictures will find their fullness through the rest of the text. Here, John introduces all of them and says, if you ever get confused, the roadmap is this. Look for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so when he does miracles, don't hear their simple tricks to show, that he's div- to show that he's divine. See there the glory of God, filled with grace and truth, bringing life to that which is not living. Bringing healing to that which is sick. Bringing ability to that which is disabled. Bringing sight to the blind and hope to the poor. And the gospel to a dying world. God's faithful, loving kindness has always been doing this. It is based in grace, and it is based in his truth. But the primary relationship with his people is one that displays his glory. And here the Gospel of John says, you want to see the Father? You want to see the glory of God? Here is Christ. That is not a distant second. He is God. He was God. And he always will be God. When he defines for himself in yet another book that John wrote as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one through whom all things were made and through whom all things consist and subsist, we serve the creator of a world that he entered into. And we are grateful for these things. We look to see our answers. And you want to know the most humbling thing about the story of Christ? When God enters into our world, he does not do so as an adult. We find him in a little hamlet off to the side, born king of the world to a peasant girl in a manger where animals eat. 
No form or comeliness that we should desire him. No call of extreme obedience, no palace, even that would have been humble for him. We see the creator of the world, not, built in front, not born in front of the eyes of those watching into the world. We see him hunted down and yet worshiped by foreign kings who did not even have the law of God. We see shepherds, the first ones who are told, not kings and rulers and theologians and pastors. No, shepherds. Dirty, out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. We see all of these things, and yet while the earth laid in complete slumber, the heavenly hosts were shouting and praising God. Why? Because they know that who is sitting in that manger not only will change the world, but made the world and is now going to save his people from their sins. That is why he came. And that is why we live. Let's pray. Our Father, to be able to say our Father is overwhelming. You have brought us into relationship and salvation under the name of Jesus Christ. We know that life is found in no other name. We also know, Father, that there is no light outside of him. It is not that he is the answer to our natural questions. It is that he is the answer to every question that we can't even conceive. And so we follow him no matter. Father, we pray that as we respond in song, that we do so with hearts enamored by who Christ is and also by what he has done. We thank you, Father, for establishing so great a salvation that our feet may stand upon a rock rather than the silty sands of this world. We thank you, Father, for this gift. It is beyond recognition. We pray you delight our minds this day in your Son's name. Amen.